Hello, I'm Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. Today, I'm going to tell Montana about the infamous Birmingham Axe murders, which oddly enough are, are supposed to be infamous, but I've never heard of them somehow until I read a book. But before we get to that, what are we drinking today? It's pick your own poison day. This so. one's, one's going to be rough. Yeah, we don't do themed uh, cocktails with very terrible stories, so I'm drinking um, a Truly. <laughs> and I would be, but I decided to not drink tonight, so I, I feel, felt like I needed my wits about me for it's this a one. story, that's, that's for sure. Before I even start, though, I'm just going to go ahead and say this one's, this one's gory, it's gruesome, and I'm leaving in the details so that you understand exactly how rough and gruesome these are. So, if you don't want to listen to that, I completely understand. I'm just going to give a blanket statement for this one. Um, trigger warning for the entire episode because I can't do it each time. So, if, you, if you're not good for that, then just skip this one, I think. Yeah, just go back one more episode. Wait, are we releasing this one? This week? Mm-hmm. Okay, just go back one more episode and listen to the shitstorm <laughs> that we're about to release. We're recording this on Monday. The shitstorm of an episode will come out tomorrow. So just re-listen to that. And we'll, we'll be posting, or we'll be releasing another funny, happy cryptid, I think. would be, I guess yeah. it would be called a cryptid. Um the after this one so you can you can do the one before and the one after and just avoid this one altogether for so sure. are you ready i don't to, know. to hear about this uh, do i yes, need to call I, my therapist after yeah definitely great and i'm gonna do my best to keep this as a one-parter because i know you guys have had plenty of two you had a two-parter right before this one then you had a three-parter right before that so i'm going to try not to make this a two-parter it may mean that this is going to be a rather long one-parter but i'm going to do my best there's a lot of information a lot of attacks so and i didn't want to just gloss over any of them i'm sure we all appreciate it again i will never do a three-parter again <laughs> i might do a two-parter at some point but it's unlikely i just don't have it in me my adhd yeah. It's a commitment on both sides of the equation, <laughs> both true. for the you, person delivering it and the one listening. Yeah, you had to deal with my erratic behavior for yeah. a couple of weeks. At least. <laughs> At least a couple of weeks. All right, let's get into it. Let's All right. It. So these attacks uh, were between... November 1919, and these are going to be rough dates because there were a lot of different attacks that were, some attributed them to these and some of them, some news outlets didn't. So it's kind of blurry, um, but the time period, it's the night, it's 1919 to 1924. So you're talking about a time period where things weren't necessarily as clear. Wait, um, was, this was in Alabama? This was in Alabama. Wasn't around the same time there was an act 
Okay. Hold that thought. I'm doing that thing where you interrupt me before I get to it. Okay. I'm sorry. I just, when you said it, I was like, wait a minute. Hold on. Take a tea. And we'll we'll see if I get a little bit further in, if it covers what you were about to say. Okay. It's approximately November 1919 to May 1924. There wasn't a pattern per se. Um, There were a lot of similarities, but basically the foreign born seemed to be the target. So immigrants, specifically Italian immigrants. And for a time, it was also believed to be one person acting alone. And the news dubbed him Henry the Hacker, which great. That's just amazing not he, seriously wait, bad did he like jazz <laughs> <laughs> you know i can't you just can't shut up can you Jeez, <laughs> i'm not gonna give it away that's fine but later uh the the longer it went uh the more and the more information that they gathered they they felt like it was at least two if not more people involved wait really mm-hmm So the numbers of victims involved in the Axe murders varies, with the New York Times reporting 24 killed and 44 attacks, but the Birmingham papers only reporting 15 dead and 13 wounded. In 2013, Jeremy Gray did a review of the cases for his book and found that he attributed 20 dead and 21 injured to the Axe Syndicate, which they were known as, as well as um, the Henry the Hacker for when it was originally just one. Uh, but the whole group of attacks is just called the Birmingham Axe Murders. How do they get such a discrepancy like that? Well, it's 1919 to 1924. Uh, New York Times is in New York. Uh, Birmingham is in Alabama. So... Uh, because of the time period, which I'll go over in a little bit more detail, uh, I'm sure not all of the attacks were reported. And even if they were reported, I'm sure not everybody cared, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. So I think that was a, a big part of it. And, you know, you also have, regardless of the area that these kind of attacks would happen, they would not release information for fear of scaring everybody because that was more important than releasing information about a possible serial killer and warning people to be more careful. Um, So I think it's just kind of a mixture of all of the above. Okay. We wouldn't want the women to read the newspaper and pass out from the, the gory details. Um, it was it was pretty rough, honestly. I don't know how much detail they really reported in any of the news. Just Heaven forbid, a hundred years later, <laughs> women are the ones who are yeah going over it. it. <laughs> and right. this, I did check. This isn't really covered a whole lot. So um, again, I was kind of surprised. I think it was briefly mentioned in another podcast that I listened to. Um, the list that I'm going to go from um on the attacks is mostly from gray's book though there was a list that was provided in forgotten tales of alabama by kelly kazek and her book and his are both going to be listed in the sources that's where i got most of the information um so i'm trying to include as much as possible like i said they were mostly focused on immigrants um mostly italian but they were also geared towards interracial couples that were quote unquote found in the act while Birmingham was no stranger to violence, especially against people of color, interracial couples and immigrants, this string of attacks was especially brutal and it lasted for obviously way too long, almost five years. To start, I wanted to go over some facts about Birmingham in the late 1800 or 
yeah, 1800s and early 1900s. Per Gray's book, between 1900 and 1910, and this part, I'm, I'm including this because I didn't realize most of this information, and it does kind of put everything into perspective. Between 1900 and 1910, Birmingham's central growth rate was greater than that of any major city in the United States, except for Tulsa and Oklahoma City, and more than three times the rate of population increase in Atlanta and Houston. Birmingham had something no place in Alabama, no other place in Alabama, or Birmingham had something that no other place in the U.S. had, iron ore, coal, fire and clay, and limestone all in one location, and this was everything needed to make steel, and it was all within the proximity of Birmingham. Between 1902 and 1912, four skyscrapers were built on the corner of 1st Avenue and 20th Street, and the corner was named the heaviest corner on earth, and there are markers on the sidewalk if you ever visit. It's pretty cool. Is that where we worked? Uh, No, 1st Avenue and 20th Street. Where were we at? We were on 5th Avenue. All right. I'll believe so that was, out. Well, it doesn't matter. Whatever. Nah, it doesn't matter. They're not there anymore anyway. Uh, <laughs> the population in the city grew from 38,415 in 1900 to 178,806 in 1920. In case you were wondering, that's a 365% increase. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I did not realize how much it grew in that time. At this time, Birmingham was flooded with immigrants and African-Americans, so much so that Birmingham is believed to have been the most diversified city in the nation, though Atlanta tried to claim they were at the time. Per Gray's book, in 1920, 56.3% of the population was white, 39.3% was black, 3.4% was labeled foreign-born white, and another 1% was simply labeled other. That's incredible. Yeah, that's that's very diverse, I would say. Yeah. By the early 20s, 30% of the city was Catholic, while Baptists made up only the fifth largest religious group, setting it apart from the other Bible Belt cities. So you're talking also very different from what I would have expected. And, you know, the diversification in the city, I feel to some extent, lends to why it's so diversified now. I mean, Birmingham is kind of like a melting pot when it comes to restaurants and churches all over the place. Like, it's it's pretty amazing when you think about it. I'm not surprised by the Catholic uh, background, simply because I dated a few Catholic boys in my day. <laughs> Maybe one Catholic girl. But listen, uh, I'm not surprised by it. Well, I mean, a lot of immigrants were there, especially from Italy, and a lot of a lot of them were Catholic. I'm sure. Yeah, that is the. I think that's the main. Re- that was the main religion at the time. I think mine were Italian. <laughs> Probably. Hey, if you're out there listening, hi. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. How you doing? <laughs> Unfortunately, population and diversity weren't the only things to grow at an exponential rate. Violence increased as well. In 1925, Birmingham had the third highest murder rate with 112 homicides. Jacksonville, Florida, and Memphis, Tennessee were the only two cities with higher murder rates. The 1920s remained the worst time for Birmingham until 1991 when 139 people were murdered, which again put Birmingham in the news as one of the most dangerous cities in the nation, and they are still fighting to get that taken away. (laughs) 
And that is what uh, people would tell me when I was growing up the whole time, how dangerous Birmingham. And this was how dangerous Birmingham was. This was in 1991. I moved here, well, to Alabama in 1995. So this was four years after that. And as a teenager and young adult, I was still being told it was one of the most dangerous in the nation. Which is incredible because... You and I spent many a nights wandering <laughs> the streets of Birmingham, either by ourselves mm-hmm. or with each other. It wasn't an issue for us. Well, I mean, but at the same time, it was just We like, met a lot of nice people that actually were very friendly and would even be worried about us and would want to walk us to our car. They weren't doing it in a creepy way at all. Like they were genuinely, hey, I want to make sure you get there okay. We're just so like, I mean, no, we're okay. Thank you. But we got this. Thanks, though. We're all right. <laughs> so I, it's just, you know, uh, I don't, I know that it is still dangerous and that there still is an issue with crime, but that I don't feel like it is as bad anymore. No, I think they, I mean, like I said, it's only the 1920s and then it didn't happen again until 1991. I mean, that's a huge difference. Um, And you also have to look at the time period, too. How dangerous were other cities around that same time? What else was going on? So it's all a persona, I think. True. And one thing to consider with regards to the information that I just shared, with such an insane growth rate, the city had the impossible task of trying to keep up with their policing, education, and housing for all of this growth. And you're talking about within, what was it, 10 years? In 10 years, it had, a, or in 20 years, it had a 365% increase. That, in population, that's almost impossible to try to keep up with. So when these are all lacking, it's not surprising that a crime rate would be high in that same city. It's essentially like the Wild West. Everybody's on their own taking care of themselves. And worse, the legal system didn't particularly care about the crime unless the white community was affected. This is not a belief. This is a fact. So there was a rise in crime in the lower income areas, especially. Also of note is the... Can you hear her snoring in the background? Okay, good. Because she's loud. <laughs> just, I think it's loud like, for you. <laughs> I'm not going to edit this out. I'm just going to go ahead and tell listeners, my I have both of my dogs in here. My entire house is empty, so I might sound like I'm in a can, but I did put a blanket up to try and make it sound dampening. But my dog right. is also old, and she is snoring, and she is a loud snorer. So if you hear snoring in the background, it's not me. It is my dog. She didn't fall asleep. <laughs> I didn't fall asleep. It's impossible for me to fall asleep. I'm on the edge of my seat. Go ahead. Sorry. All right. Uh, One thing I also wanted to take a second to note because I was worried I was going to forget it and I didn't want to replace it. Um, The wood burning stoves were often used at the time to heat the houses. So axes were readily available and they were used regularly to chop the wood or prepare it to put it into the actual stove. So... There's a reason why I'm mentioning this. It's something that's been mentioned in a lot of the axe murder cases. They were more readily available at the time. Um, People just had them around the house or by their door. 
So there is a theory. I'm not saying anything. Theory that the following attacks and murders were a continuation of the axe murders that occurred in New Orleans that had just ended when the quote axe man had told the people of the city that as long as they played jazz music throughout the night, those homes would be safe from his axe. This was a, on a Tuesday night in March 1919. Because the people listened and jazz music was played all over the city, there were no attacks, reported anyway, that night. New Orleans could breathe a sigh of relief, but Birmingham was about to experience its own fear of the axe murders over a period of four years. So, yes. <laughs> I just that up and let that. I was just it. like, wait, what time period? When was it? Wait, you mean that he pit- they picked up, whoever it was, picked up the axe from the house? And they didn't mm-hmm. bring their own axe? This well, that's a theory. Familiar. It's a theory. Mm, I think it's a very good theory. <laughs> I mean, it is a train ride away. So it's entirely possible. True. Oh, there is a direct train there. Amtrak has mm-hmm. a direct train from New Orleans to Birmingham. That's one reason why that's a theory. Okay. All right. That's, well, that's the theory as far as it being one person. But later on, once we get kind of through it, you'll see it. it's it's possible it was one person, but it seems more likely it was more than one. I'm pretty sure that Wine and Crime covered uh, the Axeman of New Orleans at one point, and I specifically only remember it because they came up with like a, a, a what is it you call a ska or whatever. Uh, um, so it was something like it's the Axeman. Oh, like a jingle. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's messed up. Yeah, so I thought that was funny. <laughs> That's the only reason I remember that that whole X Man of New Orleans. <laughs> I knew it was around this time when I started researching it, but I didn't realize it was like right after. Yeah. So again, I- to put things into perspective, because I have ten pages to go. Uh, <laughs> Nineteen fifteen. Alabama enacted its own prohibition law, which was not removed until four years after the national prohibition ended. Uh, that the law was actually removed. Well, so. if we want to get technical, they didn't lift it until like eight years ago when they lifted the hops ban. Well, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's still plenty of dry counties in, in the state. So, yeah. Uh, as was the case practically across the country, prohibition did nearly nothing to prevent the purchase and consumption of alcohol. It only made it more difficult and caused people to become more creative in the ways to provide to others and imbibe themselves. Shocking. Uh, little plug here. See the Caverns episode for some pretty interesting examples. You don't say. Um, making something illegal doesn't make it less available. Yeah. Thoughts. What? It just makes Comments. it a criminal Comments. offense. Yeah, whatever. That's the only thing I'm going to (laughs) say. Go ahead. You're only in trouble if you get caught. Remember, that's what you're taught as a kid, not by your parents, but as you're with your friends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You figure it out. With this also came the crimes well known during that time. There were fights that sometimes led to murder, prostitution. Yep. Right out in the open on the Birmingham streets, theft, etc. Some streets were well known at the time for how unsafe they were and quote unquote good people stayed far away least some of them. Prostitution was known to happen and Birmingham even had a red light district that was police protected until 1913. It wasn't until 1923 that there was a brothel 
crackdown, quote unquote, because residents in the wealthier areas were complaining that the sex workers were working on their side of town, even just outside schools on the sidewalks of classrooms during school hours. Ellen Stern wrote in her dissertation, Prostitution in Birmingham, Alabama, 1890 to 1925, that W.B. Chloe, I think is how you would say it, the city's public safety commissioner, said that hundreds of babies were literally found in trash cans because the woman could not keep them due to their illegitimacy and having no means to provide for them. His answer was to approve the Klan to burn crosses where prostitution was known to be practiced and threatened to flog both the sex workers and their clients if they were caught. This led to a focus by those in power around the city to focus on morality issues, dancing, movies that had actors considered immoral, and movies and baseball on Sunday. Both the Klan and mobs of citizens actually flogged people, and I'm not going to go into detail, but the book does. On August 11, 1921, an Irish priest named Father James Coyle officiated a wedding between Pedro Gusman, who was Puerto Rican, and a white woman named Ruth Stevenson. Later, Ruth's father, a Klan member and Methodist minister, found Coyle on the porch of the rectory and shot him in the head. Hugo Black defended Stevenson by claiming insanity and self-defense, and Stevenson was acquitted. Bullshit. I am going over this information to help explain the mindset of the people in this city at that time, both the people with money and those struggling to make ends meet to feed their families. It gives a grim picture of the city in which these crimes were committed and seems to explain some things about the time and may even help explain what the perpetrators thought of the people they committed these crimes against. For the most part, during this time, the police were overburdened by the growth of the city and frankly couldn't keep up with the crime like they needed to. Their answer is unsurprising. They focused on the crimes in the better parts of town and for the most part left the poorer parts of town to fend for themselves. That's not to say they did nothing, but it wasn't their priority. Many of the injured and murdered in this case took place in the poorer parts of town and the people affected by the crimes were considered lower income as well as immigrants. This, unfortunately, seems to be one of the reasons it went on for so long before they even realized the crimes seemed to be linked. I also think the perpetrators, at least some of them, were not caught because either they simply were never suspected, they were maybe upstanding citizens or wealthy, or they were someone hi- or someone higher up knew or suspected and simply covered for them. But I'll let you make up your mind once I go over the facts of what you think happened and who maybe was guilty okay we're about to get into the whole attacks part of it disclosure not all the attacks and murders are by acts though they are referred to as the axe murders secondly these attacks and murders are especially gruesome like i already said so get ready thirdly this is not an especially lovely period in birmingham's history so there will be a good bit of the story about racism segregation etc i'm not going to pretend it didn't happen nor am i going to pretend it had no bearing on the acts committed as the likelihood of it being the main motive is too hard to ignore you can make of the facts what you will i'm going to go through the attacks and give some information about what happened but i'm not going to delve too far into the victims because honestly there's just too many and i would have to make this even longer to just sort of go over them um i like i said i feel like you've had enough of those i highly recommend the book the infamous birmingham axe murders by jeremy gray he goes into a lot more depth of the victims the attacks the backgrounds and even the end of the the detectives working the cases and how they came about 
their resolution. Um, it's not a long read, but it's fascinated and well written, fascinating and well written. And I couldn't put it down. It was just really good. So to start, John H. Belzer was found around 7 a.m. bound and gagged in a pool of blood on December 24th, 1919. The cash register was also emptied of the $600 believed to be in it. Unfortunately, Belzer never regained consciousness and died around 9.30 a.m. that same day. His property was believed to be worth around $150,000, which is about $2.2 million today. He was a Syrian immigrant. It was determined he had been beaten with a shovel, and years later, his death was believed to be the first in the long list of wounded and dead by the Axe Syndicate. Detectives believed he had turned around to get something a customer had requested and was initially hit in the back of the head repeatedly before being tied up and just left for dead. The next attack would not be for another 18 months, which is why it wasn't initially thought of until much later. C.C. Pipkins was wounded in his shop by two men, and some of these are just reports by some eyewitnesses, and sometimes they were able to get the victims to give a little bit of information. Uh, but in this case, he was wounded in his shop by two men who hit him in the head with an axe on March 5, 1921. Luckily, two people walked into the store and scared away the perpetrators, which is probably the only reason he wasn't hurt worse or killed. Unfortunately, Pipkins could not describe the assailants, which is really not surprising when you get a blow to the head by an axe, but the two people that had walked into the crime described two black men. On June 18, 1921, J.J. Whittle was attacked in his store by two men who asked for an onion. When Whittle turned around to get it for them, he was struck in the head by an axe. For whatever reason, he survived this attack, but again, he was unable to provide a description of the attackers. And some of these are going to be short because there's just not that much information. Charles Baldone, his wife and daughter, were found wounded on July 13, 1921, when a milkman came to the store and found the door locked. As he delivered milk to the store daily, he knew this was highly unusual. When he turned to, around to look in the window, he saw children running around covered in blood. Obviously, he immediately called the police, who broke into the shop. From what the detectives could tell, Mr. Baldone had locked the door after the attackers left, probably to prevent them from coming back. He then went back to the room where his wife was and laid himself across her. Virginia, his daughter, was injured by a strike to the head, and his wife Mary, and warning, this is kind of rough, the, uh, the assailants had pounded a nail into her head. That's, oh. I'm sure this had some kind of symbolism, but it was never figured out what it was. There were other children in the home, but none of them were injured. Crazily enough, no one died after the attack, but it obviously got the attention of the neighborhood as well as the authorities. Yet again, the Baldones refused to identify the people guilty of the attack, though their three-year-old son said a black man had struck his father. Butch Baldone, which would be Charles's grandson, Charles is the father um, that was attacked, believes it was re related to, quote, the Black Hand, who were extortionists that harassed immigrant families across the nation around that time. Of course, they did what you'd expect. They extorted money from the families who had no one to protect them from such people. They could either pay up or see themselves or their families hurt. Birmingham wasn't big enough to have an actual mafia, but Butch believes the Black Hand was there instead. Uh, there is a little interesting note here. Butch has a claim to fame to be the person who paired Bear Bryant with his trademark houndstooth hat and keeps his walls covered with the coach's pictures. Oh. 
he owns a store um and that's so he's got that that's kind of like a selling point mm-hmm. but i thought that was kind of cool a couple mentioned in one source but not in gray's book h.i dorsky was wounded on august 17th and sam miss sam ziedman was left for dead in her family shop on september 6th but survived on Monday, November 28, 1921, G.T. Arai was attacked at his grocery store, Hill Grocery Number 25. This was actually a part of a chain that eventually shared a sign with Piggly Wiggly and was purchased by Winn-Dixie in the 1960s. He was to become the second person to lose their life to the so-called Axe Man or Axe Syndicate. The cash register was also robbed of $30. That's it, according to the newspaper. Again, it appeared the suspect ordered something that required G.T. to turn around or bend down to get it. And while he was turned away, he was struck in the back of the head. His yeah, wife went. Wait, thirty dollars back then is what today? Not that much. I don't know. I didn't do the conversion, but it, I mean, I wouldn't think it would be that much. We're gonna pause. All right, uh, thirty dollars in nineteen twenty one is the equivalent to four hundred and ninety six dollars and thirty eight cents today. I guess it's decent, but still, yeah, it's not worth. Sad. I mean. No Not amount worth- of money is worth killing anybody, but still, only 500 bucks. I don't know. Yeah. His wife went to the store two hours later, around 9 p.m., concerned when he didn't come home from work. When she found the store unlocked but the lights out, she called the police, who found GT on the floor with his skull fractured. He was holding a pig's foot in one hand and a, pickles, a pickled pig's foot on a fork in the other. So they must, I guess that's what they asked for They rushed him to the hospital, but he died from his injuries around 2 a.m. two days later. He was a husband and father of one. A reward was offered of $250, which is worth more than $3,000 today, for information about the attack. The police found no witnesses, and no one came forward with any additional information. Joseph Mann Tween, I guess, and his wife were killed on December 21, 1921. They were found by Thomas Price, who had seen the flames coming from their store and broke a bedroom window to attempt to help the family. He found Joseph on the floor in a pool of blood, and his wife was on the bed with her skull crushed. Their 10-month-old was found in the house by Price's wife and was saved by the fire. It was noted later that some blood was on the poor child's face, but the child was unharmed, so it must have been from one of the parents. By chance, according to the papers... A short-handled axe was found covered in blood and hair hidden under the stove. According to Price, someone had attempted to break into the home a month earlier, but the family's dog had barked and scared him off. Unfortunately, the would-be intruder shot the dog as he left, and Mr. Man Tween, I guess, had warned Price to not take any chances if he saw anyone around acting suspicious, almost as if he was afraid of something or someone. Around 4 a.m., it seemed that a customer had come in and asked for onions. As as men tween turned to get the item, the suspect struck him in the back of the head with an axe that was found. His hat was actually found in the onion bin. That's why it's assumed that that's what he was reaching for. Wait, this is the second onion requested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the other one. I think are, they were purposely picking things that they had to turn around to get. Are onions Were onions like behind the counter items back then like what is happening i I don't think it's necessarily behind the counter that just might have been where they were like (laughs) you didn't have to show id to get an onion (laughs) 
Uh, here is my ID. I think that was just the location. It just so <laughs> like, happened to be that way. <laughs> we're, I, we're, uh, or, you know, it could have been like in front, like it could have been in a case or something. And so he was just bending down to get it. It doesn't really say. Like a Basically, counter? he was struck in the back of the head. So, so like meat counters, they had onion counters. Well, a lot of times back then, you would go to the grocer and you would order something and he would get it for you and bring it to you and then you would pay. I think Piggly Wiggly was the first grocery store to actually have all of the items out for the customers to pick up and then bring to the counter to pay. Oh. And I I think at this time it was still the other way around. So you would, the grocer would get all of your items that you ordered and bring them to you for you to pay for. Well, with Instacart and stuff like that, we're going back to it. So Fair. (laughs) It was a different time, man. Different time. The handle of the axe had been cut. They believed to make it easier to carry and conceal. The suspect then dragged the man's body into the bedroom and attacked Mrs. Mantween, but left the baby unharmed and set foot and set fire to the building. This was suspected after they found a pool of blood in the store and then drag marks to the bedroom. The baby had been in a crib next to the couple's bed and would have burned alive if not for Mr. and Miss Price. Mrs. Min Tween was Min Min Tween Tween? I can't, I don't know. Was believed to have died almost immediately after they struck her, but her husband died at 11.30 a.m. There were suspicions that this attack was by someone else who had a feud with the family due to the fact that the baby was almost killed and the axe was found because the baby would have killed in the fi- would have died in the fire. Neither of which happened in the other cases. Another attack happened the same day that some believe should be included, but mostly they don't because there were too many differences. On the same day, a black man named Mo- Mose Parker was killed with an axe, but authorities were not sure if his murder was by the same group or a copycat due to the fact that Mose was a 45-year-old African-American man who was a recluse and was actually found dead in the backyard of his home in Titusville. His head was split open and his hat and shoes were found near the body. From what police could tell, he was dead long before he was found. So it was, he was found on that same day. So it had been a while. But he's the only uh, black person. So far, yeah. Okay. And it was outside of his home rather than the store. Now, some of them, like, it was outside is what I mean of the store rather than being inside, which was different. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, his hat and shoes, he, he wasn't wearing them. So that was a little bit different, too. Okay. Well, I mean, I often go outside without hat and shoes on. (laughs) Clem Crawford and his wife Alma were butchered on January 11th, 1922. Their three-year-old daughter Josephine was left uninjured. Near closing time, a customer entered their shop on Avenue D and ordered a bag of cornmeal. While Alma was filling the order, the client struck her in the head with an axe or or a hatchet. This blow, though, wasn't deemed effective as with the previous attacks. So the assailant proceeded to cut her throat from ear to ear. Before he could do so, Alma was able to grab a chair and swing it at the person, breaking it into pieces. Once she was on the floor and after her throat had been slashed, the assailant then struck her again with the believed to be axe, crushing her skull. What a her bad husband, bitch. Right? She wasn't going down without a fight. And you'll find that the women, that that has a tendency to happen. Mm, yeah. 
If we can deal with period pains, we can deal with (laughs) a fucking assailant. Get the fuck out of here. I got a chair. It's a deadly weapon. (laughs) (laughs) I will use whatever I have. It was within arm's length. Her husband was found about four feet from her body, his skull fractured as he rushed to her aid. Clem was rushed to the hospital and lived for about a week before passing at St. Vincent's Hospital. This crime was discovered by a night watchman who noticed the lights on the shop were off earlier than usual, only to find them back on when he came around again around 10 p.m., despite the fact that the store normally closed at 9.30. The police found the house ransacked with dresser drawers coated in blood. A bag with the day's earnings around $200 was missing. Alma's body had been covered in newspaper and bedclothes, and some believe that this may have been to cover the gruesome sight from Josephine, the three-year-old. Thankfully, Josephine managed to sleep throughout the whole ordeal, only waking once the police arrived. The coroner, Dr. N.R. Baker, actually took Josephine in as his wife was Alma's sister. Uh, Four black men were arrested. Two were identified as John Pearson and William Eubanks. They were standing in front of the store acting, quote-unquote, suspicious. Um, and thus were arrested. A third black man named Will Cooper was also arrested, but all three were later released due to a lack of evidence. Uh, I don't know what happened to the fourth one. Sometimes there's not clear indications of that. I'm assuming they they were all released because these were all considered unsolved for a long time. Just two weeks later at around 9 p.m. on January 25th, 1922, the next attack occurred. Tony and Rosa uh, Lamio were attacked in their store, but this time when the attacker made his move and hit Tony, he was met with a man ready to fight. Tony pulled himself back to standing while bleeding heavily from the head and unloaded the entire revolver wildly. There's no evidence he actually hit the assailant, unfortunately, but the noise brought out Rosa with their baby in her arms. Listen, Rosa, you don't mess with a guy named Tony. Right? You don't ever <laughs> fucking mess with a guy named Tony. Hey, my name's Tony. Yeah, you don't do it. He's going to fuck you up. Day or night, don't fuck with a guy named Tony. That's all I I'm mean, saying. Don't keep doing the same thing over and over and over. At some point, there's at least going to be one or two that are going to be prepared. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm just saying. This has been happening for a while now. Rosa was then hit in the head as well, but the baby was somehow unharmed. Thankfully, their other two children were also left unharmed. Yet again, the customer asked for something, and as Tony reached to fill the order, that's when they struck him with the weapon. As the attacker ran from the store, he struck Tony again in the head, but Tony got up, grabbed a nearby shotgun, and unloaded both barrels at the fleeing person. Both were rushed to the hospital, Rosa believed to be on the brink of death with her skull seemingly crushed. Tony was in critical condition, but able to talk to the police. They both survived. After, have, I'm sorry, I have... I have a question. Mm-hmm. The attackers seem to leave children alone, but in mm-hmm. an earlier case, they did a- attack one child that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Do we know how old that girl was that they attacked? Who was the, the oh daughter? the daughter? No, uh, I think she was. Um, I know which one you were talking about. They didn't say how old she was, but she must have been a teenager. Okay, so they have like a an either like a age yeah, the younger cutoff. ones they leave alone. Okay, because I was like, if it was a younger child and that person attacked a younger child, then, but at the same time, you were saying there were children running around with blood on them, and I was like, maybe they were younger and that one was older. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I was like, maybe these are two separate things. Yeah, and usually when if that might have been the only time. 
because these kind of run together, but there was maybe one or two times where a daughter was hurt, but it was, she was helping them in the store. So I think they were older and the younger ones were typically either like asleep or just not in the room. And they were usually left unharmed. Okay. Except for the baby that would have burned alive. But that's also, if I'm it's not, not mistaken, a direct the only attack. one that was the only one that a fire was started and it never says how the fire was started. So part of me wonders if that was an accident, like maybe something was knocked over and they didn't mean to do that. And then they just ran. Yeah. Cause it's not in any of the other cases. I can so. see that. And again, even if a fire was started, it's not like a direct attack on the child. No, no. Yeah. Outside of the fire, the child was fine. Hmm. Okay. Um, after this attack, the public safety commissioner announced that they were adding more motorcycle patrols at night. And he also recommended the shop owners to close their stores at night, though this wasn't a very popular solution since many of them relied on their nighttime business. Think about it. The areas that their shops are in, their frequent uh, visitors, I'm sure, are people after they got off work at night. So that's true. But down before that, they wouldn't make as much money. But also, I mean motorcycle patrols sound so much cooler than what I saw when I was in Birmingham, which was the smart car patrols, <laughs> which would drive up on the sidewalk in Birmingham. Do you remember those? Yes. You'd just be like walking down the street and like, they're so small. They would just like drive up on the sidewalk and park mm-hmm. there. And I'm like, what is ha-? And they're police. And I'm like, what, what are you going to chase down in that? Where are you going to put them? What? There's no exactly. room in that car. in this town? So motorcycles are way cooler than smart cars. Yeah, but I mean, true. smart cars. You know what? You know what? Whatever. Environment be damned. <laughs> Go with a motorcycle. Fair. <laughs> On March 27th, 1922, a white man and a black woman were found behind the Simpson Methodist Church in puddles of blood with their skulls crushed. A pipe wrapped in blood-soaked white cloth was found not far from a wig, which was also not far from the crime scene. The man was named Russell Kellum, and the woman was named Ida Lewis. Russell died eight hours after being found, but Ida lived. There was no description given of the attackers again. On June 3rd, the Lucia family were attacked at their shop on Jasper Road. The customer ordered a Coney Island dog as Joe and Lena turned to prepare the food They were struck with an axe, and Joe was immediately knocked unconscious. Lena, however, was not unconscious and was not going down without a fight. She screamed at the person and grabbed his neck. This apparently frightened him enough that he ran, hitting her in the head again, but leaving the cash register untouched. Neighbors heard her screams and came to the store to help. They found Joe on the floor in a pool of his blood, a deep wound in his head. (laughs) Can you imagine? I'm sorry, but I can't help it. Can you imagine? being that guy and he hits her and she's like oh hell no and just grabs his throat and he's just hitting her trying to get her off of him so he can run away that's all i could think like yes girl she is me irrational (laughs) irrational ways of dealing with things i couldn't help it It was just funny when when you said she screamed whatever you have to do When you said she screamed at him and then grabbed his neck, all I could think was, like, she was screaming, like, obscenities or, like, random shit. Like, uh, you fucking... Oh, and it's probably in another language. (laughs) Just just Like, that's what I would do. Fair enough, girl. Do what you gotta do. Julia Silverberg, a white 20-year-old... Or, sorry. 
Julia Silverberg, a white 20-year-old, was caught with Louise Carter, a black woman, on October 21st around 6 in the morning. They were found lying in pools of blood less than two feet apart from each other. Louise had a terrible head injury and her body was apparently bloated so bad it was difficult to identify her. She was dead when the police found them, but Silverberg was in a semi-conscious state and would live for eight more agony-filled days before succumbing to his injuries. While it was said robbery was the motive because Silverberg's pockets were turned out, the attackers left him with a sizable diamond stick pin and a ring. So, probably not. At this point, the people trying to find the culprits came forward honestly and saying that the biggest problem they were encountering was a lack of engagement from the public. The white communities were hands-off, looking at the crimes as a problem unrelated to them. The black community also mostly showed utter indifference as to whether the criminals were caught. Of course, that's only one side of the story. That's what you can get from the newspapers. I don't believe they interviewed anybody else. Abraham Levine was slaughtered on November 6th. His wife, Sarah, was injured. According to the story, a man told Mr. Levine that the door to the house behind his store was open. When Mr. Levine left his store to check the door and lock it, the man struck Abraham in the head with an axe. The man then returned to the store and told Mrs. Levine that her husband had taken the wrong key. So when Sarah left the store with another key to lock the door, the man hit her in the head as well. The stranger then returned to the store to buy some eggs from their daughter, Emma. When Emma asked about her parents, the stranger said they were okay and in the back of the store. Emma thought something was wrong and started screaming, bringing her uncle to the store from his store across the street. There he found Abraham in a potato patch about 30 feet away and Sarah was on the back porch. Both were lying in a pool of their own blood. Were they Jewish? Mm, Maybe. I think Abraham and Sarah are pretty common Jewish names at the time. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Well, I mean, yeah. it was it was all like immigrant people, mm-hmm. I guess, but most of them kind of sounded like Catholic. yeah, most of them were Italian. And Italian, yeah. So it was just uh, surprising that it was you got <laughs> you dumped a Jewish. I didn't. I'm just going through them in order. <laughs> it was just weird that Jew, like the Jewish names were just dumped in the middle of it. I was like, wait a minute. Was, they didn't I think they were Italian. looking for a certain look about people. Yeah. Well, okay. Abraham died in two days, but Sarah somehow recovered. The police believed robbery again was the motive as Abraham's pockets had been turned out and $50 that his daughter said he always care, carried on his person was gone. They also believe that there may have been a second man hiding behind the store waiting to attack once the first man got the people out of the store. They also thought that the man was planning to kill Emma, but a customer in the store prevented him from doing so. A black man named Spencer Clemens was arrested and the Levine's daughters identified him as the attacker. But when he was put on trial, with tears streaming down his face, he said he had been at home all night and had nothing to do with the attack. A jury of all white men acquitted him. Oh, interesting. And that's the only time he's mentioned, so I don't think he had anything to do with it. Yeah. On January 6, 1923, John Robert Turner, a 24-year-old white painter, was attacked and struck in the head with an axe on a few, only a few steps away from Lily Bell's house. Lily Bell was a 45-year-old black woman who had hired Turner to paint her house. She was found in an alley close to her house, hands tied behind her, with her head struck multiple times. 
Turner died soon after the attack, but Bell recovered. On January 10th, 1923, just before 7 p.m., Joseph Klein was killed and his daughter Ethel was severely wounded. It appeared Joseph had been facing his attackers when he was struck, as the wounds consisted of two gashes horizontal on the forehead and others on top of his head. He was beaten so badly that he died before midnight without ever regaining consciousness. Ethel ran to another store close by, crying for help, blood all over her face and head from the cut that was on the top of her head. Yeah, had wounds, bleed a lot. Also, mm-hmm. love the name Ethel. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. Yeah, and so this was another daughter. So, so if you notice, they're usually helping. So I think they're older, typically. Okay. Yeah. And when you said my guess, though, that's a, that's an assumption, of course. Well, I, when you said Ethel, I imagined like an older person because I'm like, Ethel's like an older name. And then I was like, wait a minute. Different time period. Yeah. <laughs> All Ethels were younger at one point. <laughs> Sorry. Excuse me for that. <laughs> if there's any Ethels out there listening. Whoops. It's just not a common name you hear now for younger people. So it was a generation thing. I mean, I would, if I ever had a child, I would probably name it Ethel. Why not? Why not? Luigi and Josephine Vitellero were killed later that month in their store. And this attack later described as one of the bloodiest crime scenes of the believed murder spree that had spanned years. They were attacked on January 23rd sometime in the evening. The report stated that two men entered their store just as they were preparing to close and turn in for the night. Josephine was found in her night robe and night clothes. When Luigi went out to see what the men wanted, he noticed they were carrying a bundle. They asked for sweet potatoes, and as Luigi bent over the bin, he was struck with with the bundle, which must have included an axe. When he fell to the floor, one of the attackers took the axe and began beating Luigi with the blunt side of it as he raised his hands in a futile effort to protect himself. When Josephine came out to see what was happening, one of the men attempted to stab her, stab her with a knife, cutting her hands as she raised them defensively. At some point in the struggle, one of the men hit her over the head with the axe and she collapsed, the fatal wound actually spurting blood and forming a big pool around her. The assailants then ransacked the house before vanishing. The couple was found the next morning around 6.30 a.m. Luigi survived for about a week, but Josephine died very soon after being found. She was able to nod to the detectives when asked if the attackers were white and shake her head when asked if they were black before she died from her wounds. Luigi, however, refused to help, pretending to be asleep when they came into his room at the hospital to ask questions. One of their neighbors also saw a white man loitering around the shop and said he looked as if he was an addict. This was also one of the first cases to offer physical evidence, including an axe wrapped in bloodied newspaper and a bloodied knife. Also odd was that the couple had two bulldogs in the back that didn't bark that night, but when people entered the next day, the dogs did bark at them almost immediately. So, wait a minute. This one, previously it was two black men. Mm-hmm. And now it's white men? One. Well, one was... They asked men and she nodded, but it doesn't specify whether they specifically asked one or two or any of that but one of the neighbors said she saw one okay but she shook her head when they asked if they was black if they were black correct okay and luigi refused to give any information so to me this one doesn't sound like it's a part of the actual axe murder thing simply because number one the description doesn't match the other ones hands down number two okay. 
if the dogs weren't barking, they knew who was attacking them. So it sounds more personal. Mm hmm. And then number three, there was somebody, an eyewitness, who saw someone else, which was never the case before. True. So. Well, there were eyewitnesses because sometimes there were customers that came in and those were the people that weren't killed. Yeah, well. But a lot of the time the eyewitnesses either ran, so they never interviewed them. But they were spurred or, the moment. They were. Yeah. It wasn't like it wasn't like a planned thing. These people. Well, and it might have been a plan, but they weren't like loitering around. Not from all we could tell, no. Yeah. So. Mm. And this one doesn't ring true as being a part of. I told you some of these seem more or less. I think there were a lot of copycats yeah. um, that took advantage of the situation. Well, and you have that. So, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't solved. So it would be easy for them to assume that it would be a part of it. Cause so much of it was similar. Yeah. And if the papers just report everything out and the police let them, then of course it's easy to copycat something. Yep. And the idea of it being in the back of the head, whenever they lean over, that's a trademark. Well, not necessarily. That's just an easy time to prey on somebody is when they're not paying attention. So if they're bending down to get something, hit them in the back of the head, that's just, that's yeah. just doing it at a timely, in a timely fashion. Like that's the easiest way to do it. So that's not that big of a deal as far as linking the crimes together. And axe, they were call all calling them axe murder. So that's not even hard to put together. This one also had the knife, but another one did too because he cut her throat. So you have a lot of things that are very similar, but there's these little pieces that are a little bit outside of the other ones. Well, what's weird to me is be is if you if you know about the axe murder of New Orleans. It's pretty apparent that that was a single person. Mm -hmm. So either this is a copycat from New Orleans, from what happened in New Orleans, or it is the same person who has picked up a partner somehow. And maybe they switch places who does the main part and who doesn't. And, that's why and one is consistent. an axe and one is a knife. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I, I feel like these, a lot of these, if you really think about it, it kind of sounds like it would take two people i have a hard time believing it's one at, at the very least in the majority of these well everyone I'm... some of them it could have been one but i feel like a lot of these it would have required more than one person you'd at least need somebody to be looking out and making sure nobody's hearing all of the noise they're making well i was gonna i was gonna say what about uh the golden state killer but golden state killer made caches inside of people's houses and like stalk them for weeks. This person sounds like, or these people sound like people of, of opportunity mm -hmm. instead of like um, planning. Though I don't know. I'm not a profiler. Never claimed to be. I want to go ahead and put that out back there either. Want to go ahead and put that out there. Never claimed to be a profiler. All I'm saying is it doesn't track. <laughs> Fair. Well, this one didn't have any leads outside of that. So it just remained unsolved. On January 26, 1923, Costas Terlikas was working in his cafe when he was attacked and struck in the head with a sharp piece of iron that was found later. 
He was saved by Jesse Julian, who had heard the screams and arrived with his gun and shot the assailant as they ran away. It was not known if he hit the target. Terlikas was severely wounded, but ultimately recovered. At this point, with no end in sight of the attacks, Italian grocers started arming themselves and protecting each other. And I'll talk about what that was, what that looked like in a little bit. There was actually a group that banded together to help protect each other. Neighborhood Watch. There you go. Charles Graffio was murdered on May 28th, 1923. The next day, the Reading Eagle in Pennsylvania reported, Graffio was found dead in, at his store in an outlying residential section last night with his skull crushed by the blow of an axe and his throat slashed. A blood-spattered axe stood behind the door. Its handle was shortened so that it could be carried beneath the coat, police believe. It was discovered that his pockets had been turned out and the store had been rifled of valuables. The body was found on May 29th by two African-American men who came to the store to make a purchase around 19, or around 19, around 9.30 a.m. Around 19.23. Yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> these dates and times. So many numbers. Oh, oh good. Uh, at least these are in 19, and I'm not getting that wrong. That's also weird, too, to me, because the axe murder of New Orleans picked up access from the people's mm-hmm. homes and things like that. To, yep. That's why I mentioned it. Which is weird. Uh, two things are weird about that. They apparently brought an axe that they customized for themselves, and then, number two, left they it. left it. Mm-hmm. Why? Maybe they forgot it. They're getting sloppy. Who knows? Maybe it's a copycat. They found his body with his coat over his head only minutes before Charles's son, Johnny, with his neighbor, Pearl Keys, returned after she had taken him to the movies. A small bottle and a funnel were found close to the body, and it was believed that Charles had turned to fill the bottle for a customer when he was attacked. The two black men fled the scene, probably fearing that they would be blamed or at least arrested. Yeah, it already happened a few times. But reported the crime to two white people as they passed, which, good on them. At the very least, they did that, like, above and beyond, I feel like. I don't know that I would have. I would have just kept running. Mr. Graffio was struck seven times on the side of the head. After he fell to the floor, the attacker then proceeded to cut his throat, despite the fact that any one of the seven blows to the head more than likely would have killed him. Unfortunately, despite the fact that an axe was found with bloody fingerprints, the prints were far too smeared to be able to use. They did determine that the assailant was likely left-handed as all of the blows were on the left side of the head while his back was turned, as well as the throat being cut from left to right. Although the left to right thing was confusing because I did that over and over in my head, which was confusing. I feel like that would be more right. That would be right-handed, yeah. But it would depend on if you're facing him, maybe. Maybe they're assuming he was like facing him when he did that. I don't know. But it if just somebody, seems no. odd. If somebody's turned around, you're going to reach around. So that would be a right so hand. Almost. Which would Unless make more sense people. to me if it was two people. <laughs> because That's the likelihood saying. of you finding, first off, the likelihood of you finding two people who are serial killers who band together and can continue this tirade for months and years on end is highly unlikely. But then to find out that both of them are left-handed people? No. Yeah, no. It's not no. possible. So I think they were maybe making assumptions thinking that it was one person. I think so too. 
The knife was believed to have been a jagged knife similar to the one used in the Vitellero murders due to the nature of the cut. The police believed in this that this murder was due to a blackmail band who knew of his actions as a bootlegger and that Charles refused to pay. They knew he kept four to $500 on his person most of the time, so they decided to kill him and take the money. This was the police, what the police believed, which... Okay, I can kind of understand, but at the same time, this is just what you believe. They didn't, I mean, from all I could see, it didn't seem like they had actually any proof of this. That was just kind of what they deduced. Uh, yeah. So. No proof. Okay, sure. On the same night, a Mrs. Joe Lantanester reported a man coming into her shop asking for change for a tin. Despite the fact that she had the money, she refused, worried about her safety after the long string of attacks that had been reported. The man left only to return and ask for some groceries. Before she could start to get them, she heard a noise and looked down to see a short-handled axe that had seemingly fallen from the man's coat. The man ran, joined by another black man in front of the store, and this was quoted. Both jumped into a nearby car and drove away. Subtle. Yeah. <laughs> the fuck? Dang it. And they just leave. How do you drop an axe? <laughs> right? But then here's here was my thought. It didn't say whether they... I'm assuming he picked it back up because it didn't say that they found the axe after she reported it. So I'm assuming he took it with him. But I just found it really interesting that he like drops it. I feel like it was one of those scenes where it like drops. He looks down. She looks down. He looks up and just darts away. Like, well, that's busted. Can't do that. Yeah. Whoops. But so I, was, I guess she got lucky. That doesn't ring true to me either. Because uh, nobody has mentioned a car being close by. Nobody's mentioned hearing a car drive away. Yeah, no car, none of that stuff. And also, these are, again, we're going to go back to the fact that whoever these criminals are, whoever the murderers are, they're opportunists. If he dropped the axe, my thought is that he would just pick it up, or they, or she, or whoever, would pick it up. And just attack Joe. Well, here's the other thing that I just realized. They jumped into a car in 1923. Not a lot of people had cars back then. and especially Not a lot of people had enough people. money. Yeah. So that doesn't ring true either. But that was that was the story okay. that was given. So um, I, I don't know. I kind of doubt that whole story. I'm vetoing that story altogether. Thumb down, thumbs down for me. Okay. This one's rough. This one's pretty gross, pretty rough, even compared to the previous ones. Elizabeth Romeo and Juliet Vigilante. And, and that's got to be the way you say it. But I, I thought the name was interesting. We're among the last victims on October 22nd, 1923. The Miami news Metropolitan. Uh, Metropolis, I'll get it right in a minute, reported the attack in an Associated Press story. The assailant of the two women used a meat cleaver. Six dollars was removed from a cash register, police reported, after the attack. It was said at a hospital where Miss Vigilante was removed that her wounds were of a most serious nature. This, that was what was reported in the news. Now to talk about a little bit more details too. The report from Bernard Vigilante to the Age Herald said, I came home and saw the lights on and heard my baby crying. I was afraid something was wrong. He told them Juliet was, was quote, hit several, with several terrible blows fracturing her skull. It was believed that thinking she was dead, the killer then emptied the register and grabbed a meat cleaver from the back. 
He then found Juliet's 65-year-old mother asleep in the bed with their three-year-old daughter named Caroline. When the child, while the child was unharmed, Mrs. Romeo was dead from multiple blows of the cleaver to her head. Yet again, the killer had ordered something, and as Juliet went to get it, the attacker hit her over the head. When she fell face down in front of the counter, the killer then slit her throat with a pocket knife. Some reports say she screamed for help when her husband walked into the store, but as her throat was cut, it's unclear if this was an exaggerated claim or if the knife just didn't cut deep enough to prevent her from crying out. In either case, she didn't die immediately and was able to crawl to her mother's room. When Bernard walked into the room around 11.15 p.m., he found his wife dying next to the bed, Mrs. Romeo dying in the bed, and Caroline sitting up in the bed crying. Before she passed, he reported she said something about a tall black man. Oddly, in the center of the room was a pile of jewelry valued at over $500 left by the attacker. Juliet died at 4 a.m. October 24th. Okay. Wait, do you have more? Yes. On this one? Yes. Okay. Keep going. A man named Jim Taylor was arrested in connection to the murders. He had admitted to, admitted to purchasing a sandwich from the shop earlier that day, but that he had no knowledge of the attacks that hap- happened later that night. When the police searched his house, they found a pistol under his pillow, though why that would be suspicious is unclear, as there's no evidence whatsoever that a gun was used at all during the attack. And everyone had a gun in Alabama. <laughs> yeah. At that point? Yeah, you better. To this day. <laughs> It's unclear what happened to Taylor after his arrest, but since the crime was considered unsolved, I would think that meant he was released. Okay, so this one doesn't ring true to me either, Mm-mm. quite frankly. Number one, so it's close because you've got, while it's not an axe, it's a meat cleaver and they don't always go with an axe. Maybe. I don't know, but it is bashing well, them in the head. suggested it could have been a hatchet a couple times. Okay. It's still a head wound uh, to the mother. And then to the daughter, there is a knife wound, but it was done with a pocket knife. No, to the, the wife. To the wife. It was done with a pocket knife, not a serrated knife, which is typically mm-hmm. always used in it. And lastly, these other crimes were crimes, again, crimes of opportunity, and it was a theft that was involved in it as well. Mm-hmm. And there but was the jewelry no, was left behind. Yeah, all the jewelry was left behind. But it was left behind in a pile. So I think the the thought was he had gotten the jewelry together, but maybe got scared off. But jewelry is not that big. You just pick, you have, men have big pockets. You just palm that shit and put it in your pocket. It seems staged. Mm -hmm. It seems very staged to me. I don't think that's a part of it either. Quite possibly. I I don't know. (laughs) Because... (laughs) <laughs> there's I mean, nothing conclusive about this yeah, case. I'm going to tell you that. There's, there's no, yeah, there's no way. It, it was the 20s. Anyway. <laughs> Fair. On November 4th, a man named W.T. Conway, a white 30-year-old man, and Lena Jackson, a black 50-year-old lying. That That's confusing. So <laughs> let me say that again. On November 4th, a man found W.T. Conway, a white 30-year-old man, and Lena Jackson, a black 50-year-old lying, 50-year-old woman, obviously, lying in an alley dying. Jackson died just hours after being discovered, but Conway survived. In this case, both were attacked viciously with an axe or a hatchet, though Conway did not have anything stolen. 
At this point, people were discussing the need to strictly adhere to the, quote, color line, as it was believed that these attacks were not tied to the axe murders and instead were perpetrated by a vigilante group enforcing that color line. Uh, I.e. white supremacy groups? Not necessarily. Okay. It was a problem deemed, it was deemed a problem by both sides. Okay. At the time. December 9th, a Mr. and Mrs. Sparks were attacked. According to Edwin Sparks, he and his wife were walking along the street when two black men jumped out of the alley flourishing guns. He And that was reworded. I wasn't going to quote what it said. He claimed one held him at gunpoint while another tied his hands behind his back with a handkerchief. The two men then robbed him and beat his wife, then dragged her down the alley. As it just so happened, some deputies were driving by not far from them and heard Mrs. Sparks' screams. They exited the vehicle and ran towards the screams, only to find her lying in a pool of her blood. The detectives believed, however, that Mr. Sparks had been the one to beat the woman, saying they found a brick with fresh bloodstains close to the scene and a bottle of liquor with fresh bloodstains on it. They also didn't find the handkerchief Sparks had described. They arrested him hours after grilling him, and later, when her state improved, Miss Sparks corroborated her husband's story, and he was released. She later identified a man as one of her attackers. Yeah, but also for that time, what was she, what was she supposed to do? Go mm-hmm. against her husband? Not going to happen. Oh. And that's so far away from any of the other attacks. Yeah. But there's a reason why I mentioned it. It was during that time. I'll get into it. The last attack that could be a part of the axe murders was J.E. Hayward, who died from his wounds on December 10th. He had been attacked on November 29th. He was found with his skull fractured, and it was believed he had lain he had lain there for quite some time. Based on the wounds, it was believed he had been struck by a sharp piece of pipe, which another one previously had said had happened. Unfortunately, he was never able to give the police any information before he died. So at the time, robbery was believed to be the primary motive of all these attacks, though some of the attacks seemed to be disputes over money rather than robbery. Many arrests were made and even some convictions, but the crimes continued and the public was furious with the lack of progress. The police and newspapers focused on African-American suspects as well as the mafia, as several of the as most of the victims were Italian. Over the four years the syndicate was believed to be active, Birmingham police chief Fred McDuff was pushed in all directions to kill the killer or, or to kill the killer, to catch the killer or killers, but the evidence was non-existent and there was no real list of suspects. Many of the victims flat out refused to cooperate with the police and this is when the police started to suspect a group of crimes rather than just a group of criminals rather than just one person. The best McDuff could offer was to deny the rise and pistol permits as well as, and by that, I mean, he denied that there was a rise. And he also actually, by some reports, actually denied pistol permits um, as well as suggest the shop owners close earlier. In addition, Sheriff Thomas Shirley downplayed the entire story. Which, all right, can we talk about the whole fact that he's trying to get people to close their shop early? Like, what a way to like punish the victims. Like, I don't know. We shouldn't wear giving that. a curfew to women when they're being. Yeah, never mind. Go on. It's, it's, 
not surprising. Mm -hmm. An Italian protection league was formed in an attempt to help defend shop owners and their families since they seemed to be the targets. Apparently, the Ku Klux Klan um, marched through Avondale and other areas the people of color primarily lived in a show of force that Macduff had hoped would stop the killings by intimidating the potential criminals responsible, insinuating that the responsible people were people of color. Mm-hmm. And this, it, this was one instance. There were a lot at the time. I just listed one. Oh, I'm sure. Ultimately, several people were arrested in connection to the attacks. Fred Glover was identified by Mrs. Sparks as one of the men that had attacked them. When they found a bloodied hatchet and a pistol when they searched his home, the police believed he was also involved in the other axe attacks, though why I have no idea. Just from a bloodied hatchet, I guess. Was he chopping up chickens? Uh, It didn't go into that. He had been looked at as a possible suspect earlier, but had had an airtight alibi for the first attacks and had been sentenced to 14 months in jail on charges of burglary and grand larceny and was released in July of 1923. Was he a person of color? He was in jail. Yes, he was in jail for a year and two months during the time period that these attacks were happening, by the way. About a month prior, he was fleeing police after someone reported him attempting to break into their home. While running, he was said to have dropped a short-handled axe similar to the ones believed to have been used in many of the other attacks. But they were left behind also several times. The police believed he was actually the leader of the group responsible for the attacks and held him without bail for assault with intent to murder. It ended there. I never saw anything else about him so i guess they let him go at some point and realized he wasn't can can i just how is a how is a black man going to lead something from prison in the 20s just okay oh wait i said that no that's right i got him mixed up with one of the other guys he he was just held without bail for assault with intent to murder on the sparks crime because he because the eyewitness identified him that was pretty much it okay and they found an axe and a bloody hatchet. That okay. that was their evidence. Cool. Next. Cool, 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 cool. Next, Will Wright and Herschel Heath. And that's why I said the Sparks thing, even though it doesn't seem to tie at all to the rest of the attacks, because it's not remotely similar. She identifies him. He's arrested for that but then held because they're worried that he, because they believe he was the leader of the group responsible for all the attacks because they found an ax on his person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, need I remind you, wood stoves were very popular at the time. So you don't say maybe, or maybe he was using that to break down the door for the house that he was going to break into. It still doesn't make him the leader of the group that was doing these things. Or, anyway, you know, he could have been skinning rabbits like our, our ghost Who guys. Who knows? <laughs> From a few weeks ago. <laughs> Will Wright and Herschel Heath at the time were with two intoxicated white men and were believed to have been about to rob them, i.e. had not yet, were arrested in connection to the J.E. Hayward attack. Pearl Bailey Jackson, believed to be the right-hand man, quote-unquote, her husband, Odell, and Peyton Johnson were also arrested and charged in connection with the Bell-Turner murder and assault. Shortly after the news reported that the trio, talking about Pearl, Odell, and Peyton, 
according to the police, is believed to be members of the gang of of a gang of five. One of the party is still at large, they say, while the fifth member was slain recently in a brawl. One of the trio is said to have confessed, implicating all five. Paraphrasing. They are suspected of other assaults in Birmingham. What's their evidence, though? They have one person from this group. Oh, that just wait. Says just wait. this. I'll get, a, I'll get into it. This sounds like um, the uh, Westmouth Memphis. West, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Whatever. Around January seventh, nineteen twenty-four, all five were in custody: Peyton Johnson, Odell, and Pearl Jackson, Fred Glover, and Ed bullseye jackson this is just another person that they found all believed to be guilty of the attacks that had plagued the city for years though the detectives were clear that they had not used any torture or physical methods to extract confessions they soon confessed to using a truth serum on the suspects to obtain the information and confessions of the crime what is truth serum you ask it's a mixture of scoplamine and morphine it was given to women during labor to ease the delivery the drug was found to put the person in a state described as twilight sleep which essentially removed their desire to lie during the interrogate during the interrogations of the suspects the drugs would be administered via iv or capsule form in increments the suspects would be given a number before the drug was administered and asked to remember that number At each increment, the interrogators would ask the suspect for the number. Once the suspect could no longer remember the number, the serum was determined to be working, and the interrogation would proceed. This was performed in a dark room, and the interrogators used bright lights to recall the suspect to his senses. The other methods used, uh, such as roughing up the witness in the ways that at the time were considered just the third degree, Pushing, slaps, kicks, cursing, deprivation of food, drink, and sleep were not used in these interrogations. Yeah, it doesn't. According to. That doesn't matter, though. If you drug somebody up and you question them for hours on end. Mm -hmm. In a dark room. In a dark room. With a bright light. They're going to. But they, they didn't they didn't do the third degree that they that everybody else was doing. No, sir. You did worse. Mentally damaging these people. <laughs> you did worse. I don't know how. I don't. <laughs> I don't understand how this you is don't be a really long episode. <laughs> I only. I only have two pages left. I promise. Oh my god. Oh my god. I it told you it's so it incredible. Real. I just don't understand how they don't see that that is worse. <laughs> I thought it was great. While the officers and doctor that administered the drug believed in its effectiveness, they did not use this as the only form of evidence. You don't they say. Stated, stated they used it with other forms of evidence only in court. Unfortunately, the drug was found to not, to not be the undeniable truth serum that they thought it was, and many of the statements made by suspects under its influence were deemed meaningless. No kidding. No kidding. Just like you, can, I'm sorry. Just like you can't, a lie detector test is not in it is no. not admissible in in court. A truth serum and a heavy quotes around that can't be. What the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> yep. uh, that's just so incredible to me. Even in 1924 there were concerns about the act- actual effectiveness of this drug and yeah. the morality of its use. You so, might as well have them swig an entire like handle of whiskey and then yeah, ask them, them questions. Drunk. It's basically the same thing. Yeah. They're high. 
Oh my God. According to Gray's book, the suspects denied the crimes over and over during the interrogation, but would later confess to certain aspects or implicate each other. While the five again and again said they made no such confessions, the police proclaimed that they had indeed made the confessions and that they had succeeded in removing the dangerous people from the streets, making them safe again. And again, those people are intoxicated. They can't back up their story. They couldn't remember it. Exactly. Most of the time, they couldn't even remember the much of it at all. So police can just say that they said it. In any case, even if they didn't. And they were even taken in the middle of the night and had just been terrified because they were just like woken up and taken out of their cells and then thrown in this dark room with one light. You wake my bitch ass up in the middle of the night, I will tell you whatever you want to hear as long as I get to go back to sleep. Well, and this went on for hours, too. Yeah. It would take one time waking me up. I would tell you I killed an entire family of goats just to go back to sleep. Like, I am just... Why goats? I don't know. Never mind. Never mind. I don't want to know. I I didn't want to be, like, gruesome. I think that's all the sneezes I have. Anyway... By February 1924, three were preparing to stand trial, Odell and Pearl Jackson and Peyton Johnson. Johnson was convicted and sentenced to death after the jury met for only 90 minutes over dinner. Johnson looked remarkably unemotional, but Pearl burst into tears. I'm going to mention here that another attack happened May 25th, 1924. Two white men were walking through downtown and struck by an axe and their pockets had been turned out. They were found the next morning by a passerby. The police were able to arrest the man they believed was the attacker, shooting him in the process. They finally discovered the identity of the man because he didn't have any identification on him and he refused to answer any questions. But he had F.O. sewn into his coat and they finally figured out that he was Frank Owens, a man with known mental problems. He actually confessed to a number of the axe crimes and even some of the axe killings, but the police didn't believe he was involved. What... Why? Don't, don't, don't ask me. That's all it said. Okay. Only days later, Pearl was tried and found guilty and sentenced to hang. She would now face the possibility of being the first woman to be executed in Jefferson County at the age of 19. And the first woman to be executed in the state since the Civil War. Okay, so she's 19. That means she would have had to have started killing people. At five, fifteen. Well, no, it would be four 14. years ago. So, yeah, fifteen. Yeah, at Ish. least fifteen. Okay, yep. sure. Odell faced his trial the next day and was also found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. The couple would be the first couple to be executed together in the state of Alabama. While all three cases were being appealed, the prosecutors made it known that they wanted all three to die together to quote make an example of them. Oh, shut the. Fred Glover, who was the one that was um, identified by Miss Sparks, was sentenced to life in prison. The day of the ja- of the Jacksons' execution date, they had even already had their last meal. Preparations had already been made. Johnson was getting a second trial, and the defense attorney swore that the new evidence they had that they had procured would clear all three of them. So the governor delayed the execution the day of the execution until July seventeenth. Before the trial could commence, however, Johnson suffered a stroke of paralysis and fell from his chair. His trial and that of Bullseye Jackson were delayed indefinitely. 
the Jacksons' execution date was again delayed until August 7th in the hopes that Johnson would recover and be fit to stand trial and all three could be executed together because they're still hoping for that. Unfortunately, Johnson did recover sufficiently and he and Bullseye Jackson's trials took place, both of them somehow, on July 27th. Both were also convicted. After 20 minutes of deliberation, the jury sentenced Jackson to life in prison and Johnson to 10 years, leased to the coal mines. Leased to the coal mines. That's they, they used to do that to prisoners, lease them to places. <clears throat> this gave hope to Pearl and Odell. Surely, if the other two were given lighter sentences, then their own should be less. Sure enough, less than two days from their new execution date, the governor stated he could not condone giving them death while the other two did not, and that would not be equal punishment, so he sentenced them to life in prison. Unfortunately, Owens, who I mentioned above, was not so lucky. He was convicted and sentenced to die by hanging on September 24, 1926. As his execution date approached, Owens faced it with as much dignity as he could, praying and preaching to the people around him. And I don't, I'm not going to go super detailed into it, but this guy was a amazing person, especially with some of the issues that he had um, mentally, but basically everybody in the jail loved him, even the people, even the uh, guards and all of them stood outside and watched his execution crying and praying and singing as he died. And, it, and it, there was a quote in here that I wanted to read. Um, I'll read some of it. I'll, I'll say that. Um, but it says the trap was sprung as ne as uh, the black prisoners in the courtyard saying, I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. The people saying the past of sin too long I've trod. I've wasted many precious years. Now I'm coming home. He died bravely as the noose and black cap were being adjusted. He stood firm and composed. He told Dep Deputy J.H. Sprinkle when it felt like it was adjusted to the proper spot on his neck so it would bring instant death. The gallows were sprung at 11.12 a.m., the news reported. The big knot on the hempen rope broke his neck, and he was pronounced dead 15 minutes later. That's how. And that, that, that is the end. There, there's no real closure. They couldn't explain. Nothing went into detail as far as the trials were concerned about why they felt outside. It basically seemed like it just hinged on their confessions under this truth serum, basically, because they all denied that they had anything to do with it. Can I give my opinion? Yeah, this is this is the time. I'm done. So go for it. Tell me what you think. I don't think that the cases in Birmingham are tied to the New Orleans case. I don't either. I just don't. Um, the like I said previously, the likelihood that not one but two murderers, serial killers, met up and stayed together mm -hmm. is just highly unlikely. I honestly, I I honestly think that whatever happened in New Orleans, New Orleans, that letter and that message that was sent out to play jazz or whatever it was was by somebody who already knew the killer was not going to strike again. Mm -hmm. It was just messing with everybody. Yeah. And was just messing with everybody, whether that person killed the other person or what have you arrested the other person, whatever it was. I, I just, I think whatever happened in new Orleans stayed in new Orleans. I don't think it moved to Birmingham. I think it's a great 
comparison and it's a great timeline. And if it did happen, that is incredible. It's incredible, but I just don't think it happened in the way that the, and I don't think that it was one person in Birmingham. I don't think it was five people in Birmingham. I think it was multiple people in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. I think maybe, maybe three of them were committed by the same people. That's it. The way, the way that they just don't, there's so many, there's so many different, different ways that these people were murdered that it just doesn't seem like the same person. Now, whether it was the same group, like the mafia, and it was just different people, maybe that might be the case. Do I believe that? Maybe half of it, maybe half of them were the mafia. Yeah, I think some of them were some kind of group that was blackmailing and extorting the families. Yeah, but I also think for the time, it was very easy for people to blame black people Mm -hmm. for crimes. And especially if you had the mafia tied into it and they came in and they attacked them and said, you make a convincing story and we'll let you fucking live. I think the ones where they refused to cooperate were those groups. Yeah. And or or it was specifically a white person who had a lot of backing by mm-hmm. people that were higher up, one or the other, because there was a reason why they did not help. I understand some of them couldn't. They were hit in the head. They may have never even seen the person or they didn't remember it. That's a real thing. But some of them, it says outright that they just refused to help. Yeah, and I think those in those cases, it could be the mafia. Now, that is the only time I am going to say I think it was the mafia. <laughs> it might have been the mafia. Do I think the mafia are tied into a lot of things? Yeah. Do I think we know what those things are? Absolutely fucking not. We never will know. Do we have any proof whatsoever? Absolutely no, not. No, we never will. But could it be? Yeah, it's, it's highly likely it could be. Uh, I don't. I just don't see... There's no reason for black people to attack immigrants, number one, unless it's a crime of opportunity to, like, steal from them if they needed to in that instance. But at the same time, like, not everybody was stolen from. Not Mm -hmm. everybody, like, and in those days. It seemed like in a lot of those, the theft, quote unquote, or the robbery, quote unquote, was an afterthought. It was a secondary thing. It was it it was very staged. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was very staged, and it was. A, I think the couples that were attacked were a completely separate thing. That somebody was taking advantage of what was happening to do what they did. Yeah, because those were all very different too. Or in, in a couple of the cases, it was the man who was attacking the woman. Hmm. And the woman couldn't say anything. Well, and the women in all in the cases that I read, like I said, I didn't go into a lot of detail, but they were known to be at least two of them, I think, were known to be like bootleggers. So they would sell drugs or alcohol to people. So it wasn't prostitution at the time. It was they were selling something else. Um, But yeah, I I think I think those were separate. And then you get into the cases where there were, there were copycats. There were two or three of the cases that you you talked about where it was a mixed um, 
mixed race attack. Yeah, that's the ones I was talking about. Yeah. And I think those were maybe perpetuated by like white supremacy groups who were taking advantage of the situation to blame it on, you know, black people. We we don't, it, it was a high time for white supremacy. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan was marching around and shit like that. And they went on parades. A lot of people in power were publicly known as members of the Ku Klux Klan. So yeah. And so they definitely a thing. They made a point to do these parades to blame black people when they probably used that as an opportunity to make it look like, because they did some sketchy shit back then. <laughs> Uh, they still do sketchy shit, but yeah, I was gonna say back then. Uh, I just I I don't see it being the same thing as the New Orleans thing, and I I no, think I don't think it was one one group of people either. I think I think there were too many. There wasn't any kind of real pattern. The timing didn't have a real pattern. Um, the locations weren't. Now the victims, for the most part, were. But you have, like, the situation with the mother and the wife and the daughter was fine. Yeah. That one almost seems like he did it. That's what I was thinking. But who am I to say? Um, I'm here to say Because that's the only one where he wasn't there. The the father or the head figure of the family. Yeah, which doesn't line up. And to stage the jewelry like that to make it look like a robbery, it looks like he read the newspaper and, and just he's a cheapskate and didn't want to actually. Lose yeah, I don't want to lose this jewelry. So and it was so vicious, like so vicious. That seems personal. It really does, and uh, yeah, that's what I said. It seems super personal. Like he hated his mother-in-law, and his wife had mouthed all to him one too many times, and it was just. Dunzo. So, I mean, there's definitely some discrepancies amongst the attacks. Some of them are enough alike that I feel like they could be. But, like, the one where they got the guy out of the store to go to the house, that's completely different than the other cases. Because yeah. all the rest of them attacked him in the store. So, why wouldn't they? Was, I mean, was, maybe there were customers in there and they felt like they couldn't. I don't know. But... That's another one. What why not? Why just go to a different store? Is that there are so many people who have the quote unquote same like description. Mm-hmm. So it just, I don't, I don't understand why they would have the same description when you don't have the same number one victimology. You don't have the same uh, motive. You don't have the same, um, uh, what am I thinking of? Motive, means, opportunity. Uh, damn it, now I can't think of it. I literally had it in my head earlier. Methods? I have no idea. I, anyways, is, none of it's the same across the board, even when you have those people who are saying that they lived and they gave a they gave a description of the attacker and they were the same description of the attacker, but it's not the same motive. It's not the same uh, attack. It's not, none of it's the same. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it sounds like somebody's going in, they're attacking these people. They're leaving them semi-alive and saying, 
here's what you're going to tell police, and then they're leaving. Or some of them could have been playing dead, though. I mean... That's true. Or passed out, or or something that made the killers believe that they were dead. I mean, these were pretty vicious. I don't think they stuck around to check for a pulse. Probably not. And you would think the mob would. Yeah, because they wouldn't want anybody left behind, unless it was intentionally. But these people were on death's door, like... It was basically a surprise that most of them lived to even be able to make it to the hospital because they were so badly injured. And I'm kind of impressed, honestly. There was one where they attempted to remove a piece of the skull that was on, like, in the brain that they were trying to save the person, but they ended up dying. (laughs) So, I mean, they, they tried everything they could, but... Yeah, technology in the 20s. But one of the theories that the police had was that there were two people involved at at the bare minimum because one would go into the store, buy something, look around for like a light switch, and then tell the and then the second person would go in, order something, and then the the first person that had come in would come in behind him and flip the switch. Okay. That was the theory. And it sort of makes sense, but again, it's just there's too much discrepancy it's too kind of all over the place even with two people and and two different ways of doing the crime i I feel like it's too varied i think there were a lot of people that took advantage of it um so i I think there were a lot of perpetrators in this case and they were just kind of all lumped together I, th- I think they were lumped together because it was an easier answer. Problem solved. We got the people that did all of the things. So we're all better now. And Let's it, move on. it sounds like to me, somebody read a newspaper from New Orleans, saw what was happening there and took advantage of that situation. I mean, they had access to it. That's yeah. not hard to believe. I, I don't think it's the same person. So that's my two cents. Anyways, good job, dude. We're going up to two hours now and it's going to be a pain in the ass to edit. So let's (laughs) go ahead and end this. Uh, Great job. Excellent job as always. Um, Where can our listeners find us on our social media platforms, Instagram and Facebook? At Reaper Tales Podcast. You can email us at ReaperGals at ReaperTales.com Um email us to this week you don't have to let me know i'm okay uh i am okay (laughs) even though you guys are going to listen to that episode two days before this one i am now okay (laughs) promise (laughs) i promise uh be sure to like rate review and subscribe to whatever platform you're listening on so you know when our bonus episodes come out and just any episode in general you never know where we're gonna surprise you with one when I have a back rooms episode, I can't not record. Hey, I have a few shorter episodes planned. Yeah, same. Uh, so yeah, do all of those things like we told you. We're uh, ordering you to do it, not telling you to. Uh, <laughs> and until next time. The Reaper will come for us all.